For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Yes, we are a lot earlier today than usual because our very special guest is coming to us live from London. Who or what are you celebrating today? Those of you who are here for the first time, my show is all about celebrating. Celebrating life, celebrating art, celebrating artists. And I believe there's a lot to celebrate if we take the time to do so. Now, I'm wearing polka dots today because today, believe it or not, is International Dot Day. We're going to collect the, uh, connect the dots today, not only in our art, but in our special guest today. Judy Blazer, actress, singer, voice teacher. She, I mean, she does everything. Uh, she's done television. She's done film. She's done stage. And she's doing the Richard Skipper Celebrate Show today. So now you have done everything. <laughs> Judy, I am, first of all, so thrilled that you said yes. Uh, and so much has been going on in your backyard. Yeah. So, yes. How is everything going on there right now? To be honest, I am quite north of London. I'm in Lancashire, so I'm in the north. And just as we have a sort of north-south divide in the United States or east-west, it's very prevalent here. The north and the south are very separate worlds. However, everyone is commiserating and celebrating, speaking of celebration, the life of the queen, who is the uh, longest monarch to have served uh, the throne. And after 70 years, her jubilee, celebrations, at 96 years of age, she finally passed away, quietly in Scotland. What an amazing life, though. I mean, when you think, I, it, when you look at the majesty, and I am going there, of a life to be known around the world, to be celebrated in the fashion that she is being celebrated. Uh, a funeral procession that was uh, I, almost, I think, six hours. Am I correct? Uh, you Not know, I don't know, but I know that the queues, you know, the lines, as we say, in the States were, you know, across the bridge and, you know, miles long. Um, in terms of, of just going to, to see the grave once it reached the, the abbey, you know, uh, for the viewing. But the procession, yeah, very long. And, and it, this is a week and will be another week. Uh, it, the funeral, I believe, is next Monday. So it, it's a very spread out thing. And then, of course, there'll be the coronation of King Charles. Exactly. So... The celebrations keep going on. And uh, and I do say celebration, even though they're mourning, they're celebrating, uh, celebrating a wonderful life. Um, I begin all my shows by asking our guests, who or what are they celebrating? Who or what are you celebrating in your life at this moment? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I suppose I could say that I'm celebrating being at last in my new house 
which is actually a very old house. It's an 1879 Victorian tiny terrace house, one of four, called Crompton Terrace. And um, it's the one on the end, so it's connected to a shop. And originally in the 1800s, it was a bakery. Lucky for me, it's not now. But um, it was a, it's been a, a, a car dealership. It's been all kinds. It was a hair salon when we bought the house some 17 months ago. Went through a lot of renovations. And now we have learned that it is going to be a funeral parlor. And I said, well, at least we'll have very quiet neighbors. And my husband added, except at night. <laughs> That's funny. You know, it's funny because, uh, you know, a few years ago, I live in Piermont, New York. Uh, and uh, a few years ago, there was a, a funeral home that they were going to convert into a and b And the, some of the neighbors were complaining about it because they said, oh, my God, the traffic, everything will be so bad. And I said, there's more traffic at a funeral than there would ever be at a B&B. It's only like three to four bedrooms. Yeah. So it was just, I mean, people were just up at arms for absolutely no reason at all. Yeah. But speaking of Piermont, you are originally from New Jersey. I am. I admit it. And as is my husband, we actually uh, both grew up in the town of Montclair and his older brother was my very first boyfriend. And, uh, and my husband was, my, my, I was 14, um, his brother was 15, and my husband was 12. So um, it's been a long ride in between, but here we are together living in England. I was actually born, though, in Dover. Uh, and then we moved to Montclair when I was six. And of course, Montclair, as we jokingly say, we can't afford to have lunch in Montclair now. You know, it's become the uh, extension of New York City. It's 25 minutes away, you know. But I grew up in a wonderful house and my parents taught in that house. So, uh, you know, the dining room was my mother's piano studio. The living room was my father's voice studio. My bedroom was over that. So... We had a lot of string trio, string quartets, chamber music, little recital kind of things in the house all the time. Um, it was a big, like seven bedroom Victorian. And my parents were musicians who had no money, but things were affordable then. And um, it was, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I was very lucky. It was a great life growing up with these two parents. You're answering a lot of the questions that I was about to ask. I asked for a photograph of you at five years old, and you said it, and you absolutely look the same. First of all, I have to tell you, you have the most glorious eyes in the business, and I'm sure you hear that all the time. Thank you. I've been told they're big. Well, they're beautiful. I mean, I mean, just these pools that everyone wants to drown in. I mean, just beautiful eyes. Um, but I look at this photograph and I ask for a photograph of you at five. Because to me, the five-year-old self is the purest self. It's just as life is beginning to truly happen for you. School is starting. Uh, peer pressure teachers uh, begin to tell you who you should or should not be. And what are your recollections of this photograph? Oh, I, I so many. Richard, my childhood is very, very vivid to me because I adored my family. And um, my mother was from Italy. 
Um, and my father was, you know, a talented uh, Brooklyn Jewish kid of Polish immigrants, um, parents, and and um, we were bilingual at home. So my my recollection of kindergarten was that I would say things and kids would look at me like, what? Um, I mixed up my words. You know, I would use Italian words and English words. Um, uh, but I, I, my my kindergarten teacher's name was Miss Lowcamp, and of course everyone says, "Well, was your first grade teacher Miss Highcamp?" No, Miss uh, <laughs> Lowcamp was my teacher. She was a very tall, slender woman with short white hair, and there was an enormous pink piano in the room. Uh, very, you know, t next to me, who was a pipsqueak, it was a really tall, tall, upright pink and when she couldn't get our attention she'd go over to the highest key and in this nice squeaky way she'd go listen to me listen to me playing the key you know that's a recollection i also remember nap time uh we had little blankets on the floor i remember the first band-aids with designs on them came out and they were circus band-aids. So they were red with little clouds and, and blue and, you know, and I used to put one on because I loved the smell of the band-aid. So when it was nap time, I got to do the, you know, these are the memories, right? I also remember, if I may, that uh, my mother loved to tell this story that um, we always had on our little pink table and pink chairs, which were, about a foot high off the floor, we always had uh, birthdays, celebrations, as that mm -hmm. is your theme. Yes. And um, one particular day I went home and I said to my mother, they were very proud they were sending me to this school because it was a private school. And the only reason they did that was because at that time the public schools were not very good. So they really made an effort to send my brother and I to this private school. And um, I came home and I said, Mommy, today was a special day at school. She said, oh, Judithina, yes. And what was today? She knew what the day was. It was a holiday. I said, today was somebody special's birthday. And she said, yes, Judithina. And whose birthday was it? I said, it was Christopher Columbus's birthday. And she said, yes, that's right, Judithina. And what did he do? I said, he didn't do nothing. He didn't even come to school. <laughs> Good for you. I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my, my head around it. You were sitting there at the table having our milk and cupcakes. It was a special day. The guy didn't show up, you know. Um, I also was engaged to be married in kindergarten. Um and uh, eventually the teacher took me and Douglas aside and said, uh, Douglas and Judith, as I was called back then, until I finally said, I'm really too small for this name. And the teacher said, Douglas and Judith, um, you cannot get married. You're five. And, you know, what can I say? Devastating. I, I had the little engagement card he gave. How long was the engagement? <laughs> oh. It felt like years, but it must have been a month. I okay. think, you know, 
things were happening. I think when Gretchen wanted to sit next to Douglas, I pulled the chair out and she fell on the floor. So finally, Miss Lowcamp had to address the scenario. But I did go to his house to play after school one day. And this was back in the days, you know, back in the 1900s, when we weren't allowed to wear slacks to school. So you would bring your play clothes in a bag. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, at five, it was a big thing to go to someone else's house, you know, because you were still very small. And, you know, so I went after school and um, his mother made tomato soup, which I threw up that night. And it caused me to not eat tomato soup for like, you know, 20 years. Now it's my favorite soup. But I only remember that. Um, I went into the living room. She said, Judith, you can go in there and change into your play clothes. So I went in with my little play clothes, which was a skirt, uh, which was uh, trousers. I was wearing a skirt. So I had thought it through. Douglas followed me into the room and I changed. And when I came out and Douglas came out with me, Miss uh, Mrs. Sally, her name was, said, Douglas, you, why did you follow Judith in there? You you weren't supposed to do that. I said, it's all right, Mrs. Sally. I had everything taken care of. You see, I put the trousers on first, and then I took off the skirt, showing her how I had thought it through. And then I proceeded to go up to his room and completely redecorate it, feng shui it, if you will. <laughs> I love this. I couldn't, I couldn't alphabetize, so I put all the books according to height. I still do this everywhere I go. It, it's crazy. Um, and I clean things up and I rearrange things. He was not happy with this. And then I went into his three-year-old sister's room and started doing it. And then it was time my mother came to take me home, at which point Douglas was no longer speaking to me. So I'm not sure if Miss Lowcamp ended the engagement or whether Douglas just had to break it off. Um, I did kind of look him up on Facebook and I found someone that looked just like him. And he was a proud uh, right-wing gun carrier. And I just went, well. You made the right decision. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't happen. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing looking back at you know those times. Growing up in this household, uh, thank God you were surrounded by music uh, with both of your parents. Uh, I didn't have that, so I envy that. Um, so growing up in that, when did you start gravitating towards the music or was it always there? Uh, it was always there. Um, last night, uh, Carmina Burana was on the radio and I was listening to it and just, you know, singing along with it like it was a national anthem. And uh, and Will said, you know this piece very well. Did you play it? And Because I, I grew up playing the violin and my brother was a cellist and we did a lot of chamber music. I said I would never sing because that's what my parents did, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mother told me several times that she kind of freaked out when she went to my crib and heard, heard me going, um, you know, I was singing Carmina Burana, but if you think about it, really, um, kids imitate what they hear, don't they? That's right. And that's what was they were working on at the time, and Verdi's Requiem. So I was singing those before I was speaking, um, just to say that music was very, very second nature to me. I think I, 
I probably heard more music than I did conversation just because they were working all the time, you know, and really good food. We had really good food. Well, once your parents realized that you had the gift of voice, um, did they encourage you to go in that direction or did they want you to focus more on the instrumental aspect of music? That's a good question. They were very happy that I was a violinist. I, I played a lot of solo gigs. I played a lot of chamber music. Um, I preferred chamber music. I didn't like being a soloist as a violinist. It was too stressful for me. I once talked to Sheldon Arnick about that. We found it was a common bond. He was a violinist. And the reason he became a lyricist was because he was too nervous when he played the violin. And I, I felt the same way. I love playing, you know, in, in a, a chamber uh, setting. Um, but uh, playing alone and being featured was not my thing. That being said, um, I started singing when I was very, very, very young, but I was embarrassed by it. I would hide my voice in the chorus at school. I would take the vibrato out. But at the same time, my father would have me illustrate for his students, but I wouldn't do it in person. So he'd say, Judy, would you go upstairs and sing the Queen of the Night? And I would go upstairs and sing the Queen of the Night. Or would you do illustrate a trill or would you, you know, again, I was imitating everything I heard. I heard voice lessons every day under my bedroom, Saturday mornings at 10 which wasn't great because I like to sleep late. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually it was acting that brought me to singing. I loved acting. I loved, loved, loved film. Um, again, this is back in the day when you didn't get a TV uh, right away. You had to be a very affluent family to have a TV. So when we got a TV, it was black and white. And the films were all in black and white anyway. So my mother, who grew up in Italy, um, you know, Italians had this image of America through the, the golden age of, of Hollywood, the silver screen, you know. She knew all their names but had never heard their voices. Because in Italy, as in much of Europe, all films are dubbed. So when she came to America, she was 35 years old, and she heard, you know, Jimmy Stewart and Mirna Loy and all these, but and she knew all of their names. She knew everything about their movies in detail. So she and I would sit and watch movies. And it got to the point where I remember getting the newspaper and circling. I would plan my week. And if it was a really good movie, I would say I was sick and play hooky and oh, think wow. Yeah, I mean, it was. I was a maniac about it. There was the get home from school. There was the four thirty movie. There was the six thirty, the eight o'clock movie, the nine o'clock movie, the eleven thirty, the midnight show. You know, sometimes I'd say good night to my parents, and then I'd sneak and watch. You know, a one a.m. movie. I mean, I was. I did the same thing. <laughs> yes. I'm surprised. I'm not surprised where you got your love and knowledge from the plethora of old films that we were able, now you have to see them on, you know, special channels or they might be on a rerun. But back then, uh, these were already reruns, but uh, movies from the 30s, 40s. Um, but yeah, uh, that's what I wanted to do. So I started doing that in high school. 
Um, and then eventually, I, 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 I was not good in school. I never was good in school. I didn't like going. Um, I had problems with it. My attention span was not geared to most of the subjects, um, unless I had a great teacher. And so I left my junior year of high school, uh, and I went to Manhattan School of Music and decided to be a voice major because then I could at least be on stage instead of in the pit. I could at least be playing characters. And I could use my voice, which at this point I had been doing a lot of singing, and it was getting very trained. I started working uh, professionally as a singer at 14. I was doing a lot of, you know, like a ringer for chorus jobs and mm -hmm. church jobs and that kind of thing, temple jobs. Um, so I I did I took that route because it would get me closer to acting. I remember um, excuse me for interrupting, but even at that time at fourteen when you were getting these jobs, yeah. In your mind, were you thinking of pursuing this as a career? Uh, the acting, you mean, or the uh, the or? Yes, absolutely. There was there was no question in my mind, Richard, that I could do anything else except maybe feng shui people's rooms. I mean, I, I, I had no, I, I just didn't feel I had any other reason for being. I, I, I you know, corny as that sounds. No, I, it doesn't sound corny at all because every artist that I've had on this platform yeah. has that same experience. Yeah, I think because I loved my family, uh, because I loved being in my family, because we were very doted over as children. Um, our, our parents were extremely loving, and they exposed us to three things. Music, art, we went to a ton of museums, and woods and lakes, walks in the woods. I mean, it was nature, music, art, and, and, and acting. You know, that's what they fed us. Um, now, I want to ask this question very respectfully of your parents. Um, growing up in a household where both parents are teaching, uh, it's one thing to have that aspect of that growing up. It's a completely different aspect to think of it as a legitimate career to go out into the world and yeah. do it. Yeah. Were they encouraging of you going out and pursuing it as a career? Yeah. So much so. I mean, I was already doing it all through high school. Uh, I was performing a lot in things. Uh, Montclair had a lot of community projects. They were big. Um, there was a, a this, I, don't, I don't know if they're still in existence, the Montclair Operetta Club, but I was doing that. I was playing in a lot of pits. I was doing a lot of chamber orchestra stuff. I played with the uh, Young Artists Concert Organization, Yako it was called. Uh, we did a lot of concerts. Um, and and all the all the shows at school. I did Damn Yankees uh, in high school, and my husband played in the band. He was in. He, he played tuba and banjo. We have the poster in our in our kitchen. It's crazy, you know. But I loved it. There was we did a, a, a touring uh, a, a show, a Comedia dell'arte piece, uh, Andrew Cleese and the Lion. Um, and my parents, they loved that. They loved that more than anything else. I think to them, the violin lessons were more important than how I was doing at school. They always got notes saying, she's not concentrating, she's slow. 
Um, she can't pay attention. Now they have names for stuff like that, you know. Um, but uh, I, I think in our town, I was babysitting a lot for Lou Zorich and Olympia Dukakis. Mm. It was just around the time they were starting the whole theater company. And their, their, their children, Christina was six, and uh, Peter was three, and Stefan was a baby. And I was 14. And it was the same time that Louie had done uh, Fiddler on the Roof, which I think they might have, I don't know, they, they shot it in Czechoslovakia or somewhere in, you know, the Slavic regions. Um, and he was going to start, he and Olympia were going to start the whole theater company. And uh, then he got this part. And his friends all said, it's okay, Louie, take the role. We'll start the company. We'll go with you. They all went, like where he was shooting the film, and they started the whole theater company. And then they brought it to Montclair. And I remember one one year, uh, as I was trying to figure out how I was going to deal with being a terrible student and my need to perform and to be in the arts. And they, I, I talked to them about acting. And Olympia said, uh, and both. Olympia and who said, if you're going to be an actor, you have to read constantly. You have to be prepared to read constantly. And I am not a good reader. And back then I had tremendous trouble concentrating and reading. Uh, still to this day, I'm, I'm, I wish I were an avid reader. My husband's a, a professor and historian literature. He inhales books, a book a day, you know. And with me, it's two books a year, if that, you know. So I think that, that that scared me. So I thought, well, I'll take the singer route. And I did take that route. And I did four years of nonstop opera and performing. And during that time, I remember I did the Fantastics one summer at a dinner theater. I kind of got some musical theater in. I remember that Lehman Engel came to Manhattan School of Music to do a master class. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't sing for it. I didn't think I was good enough. Wow. I didn't think I was good enough to do musical theater. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, you know, if, um, if young people could only learn to trade in their false ego uh, uh, and misconceptions of themselves. Where did that come from? I mean, you grew up, obviously, in a very supportive household. You were surrounded by music. And at that moment you feel that you're not good enough. Do you have any inkling where that came from? Yeah, I do. Um, my mother was that way. My mother was a very, very uh, respected artist, performing uh, artist in, in Italy, uh, a singer in the classical realm. And she was also a very good pianist. She started out as a pianist, um, but, it, at her time in the Conservatory of Naples, she got several degrees, diplomas. So she had them in piano, composition, voice instruction. But because she had a voice, all of her composition colleagues at school began asking her to perform their pieces. And this led her into a very prestigious uh, career and being the staple singer for Rai Italia. Mm -hmm. um, and um, my parents met during the war they met because my father was stationed in Africa, wounded, and then 
after he healed, was sent to Italy. And that's how they met. They needed a tenor for suddenly Nazi di Figaro. And then my father was stationed there and he met my mother and the rest is history. But wow. um, my mother had a very, uh, it's a deep question. And, and uh, without taking too long to answer, she just didn't have a sense of, of who she was, of how beautiful she was of how talented she was. Um, you know, she grew up in fascist Italy, you know? Um, her parents were crazy, <laughs> you know? But I had the love and the support. It's interesting because it poses one very important question. Do we learn what we're taught verbally or do we learn by example? I was taught that I was wonderful all the time but I watched my mother constantly deflect uh, compliments and not believe in herself enough. So I think maybe I picked that up from her, you know? Well, it's interesting. You grew up in what seems to me, based on everything that I'm hearing, in a world of yeses. Mm -hmm. When was the first time that you were told no? Wow. These are some great questions. I'll probably come up with an answer at 3 a.m. Um, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I didn't hear no a lot. And I think, I think that that's what made later years harder for me. Wow. When everything comes as a yes... And you end up sort of surfing the wind like I did. I mean, here I went to a conservatory. I'm, by the time I graduated, I had made a ton of recordings. I had performed at Carnegie Hall, Avery Fisher. I don't know what they're called now. Forgive me. I can't keep up with the, you know. the. Well, you feel that for me. <laughs> I, I, I can't go there. But you know, I had been exposed to so much, and I did so much. Um, and I wanted I remember uh, I, I lived in Italy for a while with my brother in Florence, and I performed all through the country. Um, but Italy was still, I don't know, it just was, it wasn't New York. It didn't have the pace. It didn't have the possibility. I came back to New York, and I was so young for the opera world. That was a little bit of a no, um, only in that I was a very light lyric, coloratura soprano. There was no way I was going to be doing uh, anything other than those coloratura roles. Uh, and I, everyone was saying, you need to go to Switzerland. You need to go to Germany for the smaller houses. I didn't want to do that. It kind of pushed me into pursuing musical theater. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time, someone you might even be aware of, Norman Large, who then went into musical theater. Mm -hmm. Norman was my um, conservatory boyfriend. And uh, I noticed that he was auditioning for musicals. And he said to me, you're not going to believe this. You get this paper called Backstage. <laughs> you're reading my mind. You're, you're answering all my questions. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm a bit of a fossil, right? So anyway, you do. No, me too. I, I, I know exactly. I'm I know right there with you. That we can speak in the same generational terms. 
um, you know, you said you go through it, you, you, you look at the show and then you, you go look at the breakdown and the one that describes you and you, you circle it and you show up at that address and your number, whatever, you know. Um, and I started doing it. And I couldn't believe that I didn't have to sing five arias back to back in five different languages and barely get a thank you. Um, 16 bars. Now, I did not feel confident as an actor and not as a dancer, although I'd had a tiny bit of ballet when I was young, but um, I, had to, I had to start that up. So I, I did start up another uh, mutual friend of ours who I'm still friends with now. Um, it was a student of my dad's. My dad was on the faculty at Manhattan School of Music uh, and was my teacher. Talk about, you know, incestuous. Um, it's, I think it's the only way my parents could reason sending me to New York to live in an apartment at the age of 16 because I thought I was grown up, but boy, looking back, I sure wasn't. And, uh, you know, my dad was able to keep an eye on me. And anyway, my friend Artie took me to, you ready for this? This is a throwback. Act 48, dance studio. Lillian Heitzman, I took dance class. I was humiliated at first because I couldn't pick up these jazz combinations. And eventually, I moved way to the front of the class. I started learning sides and how to, how to read them and everything else. I got some gigs. I booked some this, some that, Smithsonian Institute. I made a recording, blah, 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 blah. And then I saw it. It. I saw it. The Fantastics. Everybody had asked me when I did it at Neil's New Yorker Dinner Theater on Route 46. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, I remember that very well. Yeah. They said to me, have you seen the show on Sullivan Street? And I said, no, I haven't. And I still hadn't. But I saw an open call, and they saw 300-something girls that day. I was number 90. I must have sat up in that gallery for hours. But I knew the monologue, and I knew the song. And I went in, and I auditioned. And Kathy Hall, Kathy Fall, I still remember some of these names. I can't remember what I did yesterday. Kathy Fall said, um, we're going to call you in. So they called me in, but I was doing a Smithsonian gig. And um, they said, that's all right. We're, we're like a revolving door here. We'll call you again another time. And they called me another time. And now I was doing Naughty Marietta with the Smithsonian and doing a recording for the Smithsonian. So I didn't want to turn that down. They said, we'll put the understudy on, Joan Wiest, and then you can come in when you're done. And I did. And I thought, this is it. I mean, it doesn't get better. Talk about yes, 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 yes. And I did it. I did it for uh, nine months. I was so happy. I, I, I loved it so deeply. That little theater, the traditions of that show, working with Tom and Harvey, they liked our cast. So they came in a lot and they'd, they'd rehearse us and take us to dinner. And then we'd do the show. You know, it was just great. And then I had an audition for Goodspeed, for Bloomer Girl where I met so many people in the business that I'm still friends with now, Jason Graw being, being one of them who I speak to regularly. I always say, what a shame that that man has no talent. I know. And, and he's, so, he's so not funny. But he's one of my favorite people on the planet. Isn't he wonderful? And we, we speak very often. Um, but I, I got that, that, that job, and I had to leave the Fantastics because that's where I got my equity card, too, doing the Fantastics. It was like a dream, you know? And then I went to Goodspeed, did Bloomer Girl, and based on that, Bobby Nigro 
Remember Bobby Nigro? Yes, yes. May he rest in peace. Mm. Jim Cramer, it was Nigro Cramer casting. They were looking for somebody for a soap opera to play opposite Larry Brigman. Now, I didn't watch Daytime. I didn't know who Larry Brigman was. I didn't know what a great theater actor he was. And I was auditioning, ready for this, for the role of a Swedish model. I know. I'm five foot two and I'm an Italian Jew. Five foot two Italian Jew. Let's cast her as a Swedish model. When I asked them, I did a very, very, very long scene, which was staged and everything, you know, on camera. And I got the job. Freaked me out. Um, I, 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 I was nervous as hell about it. I didn't want a job on daytime. I didn't like daytime. I didn't like soap operas. I thought it was a step down. That was a little bit of the, you know, classical snobbery. I found out that all my friends in classical music all watched it. But wasn't that the consensus in the business at that time for a lot of actors? Yes. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, you know, who was on that? Margaret Colin, Meg Ryan, Justin Dees. Um, you know, so many people that went on to do um, uh, um, what's her name? Totally blanking. Uh, Marissa Tomei. Yeah. You know, just Jane Krakowski was a little girl. She came on the show, I remember. Um, and her mother had done my costume for the Fantastics at Neil's New Yorker Dinner Theater. But my grandmother was obsessed with As the World Turns. Oh, really? And, uh, so I would watch it with my grandmother in South Carolina. And then years later, Eileen Fulton and I became very close friends. Uh, she's back in North Carolina. So, uh, but uh, love her dearly. I, you know. Still with us, Eileen. She's still with us. Yes, she's still with us. And she has a birthday. Wait, wait a minute. What's today's date? On the 18th, uh, she has a birthday coming up. No kidding. I, she was great. I loved her. She brought all her own clothes to the show, did all her own, her own makeup, her own hair, her own clothes. She was lovely. I, I, I really, really liked her. And I remember that I had her book that she'd written. And she gave it to me because she had done the Fantastics. And there was a picture of her in the book as Louisa with Pat Bruder and Chuck Dubrovner, who are still close friends, mm -hmm. who were together already then, uh, who went to see her. So, you know, so many connections, but um, I did do the show. I learned a lot on it. Um, I mean, to get a straight acting job, careful what you wish for. You know, that's all I can say. Careful what you wish for. I did it. I got it. I learned a lot from it. Um, and then I and then I wanted to be a musical. So once I got out of daytime, I went. I wanted to be on Broadway. It took a while, but I got there. So doing the, how long were you with As the World Turns? Just under three years. Um, Married to Larry, then married to David Forsythe. He was brought on as a character for the show. Um, I, I, you know, my default in life is to be funny. I, I realized one day, uh, maybe in my late 20s, that, oh, the Judy, this is what you do to get out of situations or when you're uncomfortable uh, or really unhappy. So um, I, I didn't, 
I wasn't comfortable with the writing. I wasn't comfortable with the intense melodrama. I also was playing a bad person, a bad girl, a gold digger. And it was, it was very cliche. And, and so new writers were coming on the show. Oh, by the way, Larry Brigman was an incredibly funny man. And as soon as the cameras were off, we'd start doing comedy routines. We'd entertain the, the boom and the camera and the, you know, whoever was on the floor, which was a hundred people. Mm-hmm. And so it got to the point where people expected us, they'd lower the boom and they'd put the cameras on and I'd tell a joke and then, you know, we'd block and tape. Well, one day new writers came on and they said, what would you like? We want to know what you would like written for you. And I said, write a sitcom for me. I'll be happy. And they did. So it was all of these fantasies that my character had, these funny, funny fantasies of me dressed up a little house in the prairie, me <laughs> as the queen, actually me as the queen now that I think about it, but all these things. And you know what it, What happened was it backed them into a writing hole. You can't have a comedian on daytime television. That's not the goal there. So eventually, you know, uh, I, I, uh, my final scene was preempted by a presidential speech or something. So the last people saw, I went up to the closet to get a pair of shoes and was never seen again. Oh. Yeah. And that's show business in a nutshell right there. Yeah, it is. It is. And after, after this was, I mean, were doors opening for you or was the pursuit uh, at easier or harder? How did things change for you? Things went well because in the words back to Olympia, man, Olympia Dukakis, she always used to say, hang on to that leverage. <laughs> you know, um, I did. I was a popular daytime character. So people wanted me on their tour in their summer theater, wherever. And um, I remember I went almost immediately into West Side Story at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. Susan Shulman was directing. And at the very end of the audition, just as I was leaving the room, she said, excuse me, but have you played this role before? And I said, yes. She said, where? I said, in my living room when I was five. Well, I have a hello for you. Um, And I, I... I hope I pronounced the last name right. Michael Cincinnato. Hello, everyone. Just want to say hello to Judy, wardrobe supervisor, 45 seconds from Broadway. So he says hello. Oh, my God, Michael. How sweet. Oh, what a memory. Oh, my God. Those were uh, William Ivy long clothes. Yeah, lovely. Hello. Back to him. Big kiss. He's watching. Thank you, Michael, for being here. Oh, lovely. So I want to ask you, I mean, I am going to do a giveaway today. And the giveaway, I mean, one of my, I love this CD of uh, Rogers and Hearts, Babes in Arms with you. Uh, and I'm going to give it away to a lucky and uh, winner today. And the word that I chose today, I choose a word each day, is optimism. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, what gives you optimism in either today's world or in the business? The business is constantly changes. Uh, what are you optimistic about at this point in your career? Well, I love your questions, Richard. They're, they're, they're real people questions and I love them. Thank you. Um, I'm going to say this. I believe it or not, I'm not an optimistic person. 
I'm not optimistic for myself. I'm optimistic for other people. And so what makes me feel optimism about life is young people. And I adore very old people as well. Um, and I think they must be always honored, honored, honored. Amen. But, but yeah, but young people, I, I think young people need to hear old people's stories. And old people or older people live through the passion and the joy that young people have about wanting to perform. When I see that now, and I see how much people wanted to come back to the theater, how much these, these, these people wanted to keep performing and finding ways to perform. Um, I think the theater and art in general will always, always exist. It is an immediate, direct reflection of everything we are as human beings. And so that gives me optimism and, and, and altruism gives me optimism. People that are doing good things for others. This is a very, very troubled time. So when I see people that are starting groups to help this organization, help that organization, uh, help the oppressed, uh, help poverty. Um, that that is very moving to me. I'm I'm always very optimistic when I see that that's around us in the world. That's great. Marianne Lapinto says hello. Hello, Marianne. Uh, so many lyrics and lyricist shows that you did. Uh, so uh, she says hello. Um, I've got three, believe it or not, mystery questions. I have this box of questions. I don't even know what the questions are. Uh, that I'm going to ask you. So let's go. The first one is, what's one thing that you did that you wish that you could go back and undo? Uh, um, you know something funny? Oh, man, that that's that's almost like a, you know, extrasensory perception uh, going on in terms of, the, I just started reading Shy. Uh, everybody's reading it. Yeah, I just started reading it. My husband got it. My birthday's not until October. I know. Happy early birthday. Thank you so much. I um, I, Jason and I were talking, and he said, "You've got to, you've got to read Chai. I can't put it down." And I thought, you know, I knew Mary, and I loved her, and she was very quick. <clears throat> we spent like one really long afternoon together in the Hamptons. <clears throat> And she had invited me to go out and spend the weekend with, with her and Hank, and I didn't. And I regret that. So I, I think that I'm going to regret some of the times that I hid, like going to the Hamptons to spend a weekend with Mary and Hank, or when Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, my, I, the person I worshipped, Anne Bancroft, my role model, came backstage to 45 seconds from Broadway. And because I was in my wig cap, I didn't want her to see me with my little pin head. And I couldn't get my pin curls out fast enough and get looking nice, so I didn't go to meet her. And this is the kind of thing, there was a, a careful caution. I wish that I had thrown caution to the wind a bit more. And I think if I was ever unkind to anyone, which I wasn't that much because I really value kindness, but if I was ever unkind, I regret it. 
Well, I know this is going to sound a very woo-woo thing that I'm going to say, but this is uh, a full moon uh, tonight, tomorrow night, is the Pisces full moon. Ah. And this the uh, uniqueness of this full moon is it's all about forgiveness, letting go of anyone that you feel that you need to forgive and forgiving yourself for people that you need to forgive. So this is the time to think about those things. Lovely. That's Lovely. where my brain goes. So, so my, my next mystery, uh, how are you uh, How are you doing good in the world where well, your work is uh, doing good? And how do you feel about the level of impact that you're making? Um, I wish I could do more of it, and I hope to do more of it. Um, I have some possibilities to do some... Uh, teaching in Italy, um, they they would do well to hire me because they save money on a translator. Um, uh, but um, Lithuania, uh, a, a lovely friend of mine, Joey Bates, uh, there, Barcelona, a couple of places we've thrown around the idea of my going to teach there and, and direct. I love teaching. I love it. Love it. I do it online. I love it. And I like directing so much and haven't had as much opportunity to do it as I'd like. So I think um, that would be one way in which I would definitely be able to give because when I do anything with young artists or older artists, again, respecting their worth, um, I like them to feel good about their work. And, and, and I think, you know, Having been the recipient, as have many, in the theater uh, and in television, of uh, not being treated sometimes kindly, being treated inappropriately, I, 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 I now realize the value of it, of kindness and encouragement and all of that. And the students I do have now online, they always thank me. I get, During COVID, I gave people two-hour lessons. You know, I said, you know, it's on me, you know. Love I, you. That's giving. That's truly. I had to do it. I, I just felt like you guys are struggling. I know what it is to struggle. I went from, you know, having a, a, a television money to eating, you know, beans for dinner uh, because I love the theater, you know. Uh, but so that and I do very much look out for older people. I have a few older friends and I check in on them regularly. Um, and, and I let them tell me their stories because I think that they need to, you know, everybody needs an audience, you know, and, and then there's one more again, maybe sounds corny. Mm -mm. I, I, well, I think we're on the same page. I try to be warm in my interactions with people. I, it's my nature because my parents were that way. Uh, my father, we used to tease him because he'd go out to run an errand and he'd come home three hours later. Um, <laughs> and that's because he had to drop in on each one, check this one out, flirt with these girls, tell a joke to this one, talk to Lou Zorich in the, ve in the vegetable section. You know, he'd he was, uh, they used to say he could befriend a lamppost. And I think I'm kind of that way, stranger in a strange land. Uh, it's very different here. I'm not really fully acclimatized. Uh, so I, I keep trying. And I think people respond to kindness, no matter where you're from. I totally agree. Now, this question, this is called a shh card, okay? 
It says, take a long pause before making your point in a disagreement, how it works. Uh, initiating the silence signals the confidence in a disagreement. So I'm going to ask, has there ever been a moment in your life in a disagreement where you took a pause and it was the right thing to do and it had the appropriate outcome? I just love your questions. I just love your questions. Uh, let's talk once a week, okay? Let's um, do it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm answering your question. Uh, tell me if I'm not. Uh, I have dodged disagreements. I have hidden from disagreements. Once or twice, when it came to standing up because someone made a racial uh, or sexual slur, I stood up. Um, probably like you, I had too many friends die in the 80s. I was not going to let one comment slip out of anybody's mouth in my presence without my jumping in the pool. And I did that a lot. And racial slurs, I jump in, I jump in. Um, but when it comes to disagreements with friends, I do think silence is valuable. I do think that being very marked and careful about the response and not jumping into an accusatory tone, but rather keeping a gentle, kind, fertile neutrality, a, a, an arena in which thoughts can be expressed. It took me a lifetime to learn this. I'm still getting there. Um, my brother just the other day told me about an incident with a family member where um, there was this kind of uh, disagreement and my brother chose honesty. He apologized if he had hurt the feelings of this cousin. He said, but I must tell you, you have hurt my feelings in that you haven't come to see me the three times that I was in New York. You don't ever ask me about my life. In other words, he was honest but kind. And then I wrote to my brother. My brother's five years older, and he's very much my big brother. But in this instance, he asked for my opinion. And I, I said all of this that I'm sharing with you now. But most of all, I remember that very long quote by Anthony Hopkins that I've seen on Facebook about if someone isn't there for you and can't return your love and, and can't be a good person to you as you're trying to be to them, let them go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hard to do. Hard to do. Very hard to do. I realize that I have spent much of my life wanting to be liked by everyone. And this quote says, not everyone is for you and you're not for everyone. And now that we're living in this age of disagreement and hostility, um, I think finding um, ways in which to graciously connect with people and distance oneself from harmful conversations. But when it comes down to it, if somebody attacks 
the LGBTQ movement, my friends of color, ethnic people, my own ethnicity, people who are different, people who are disabled. If that happens, then I will jump in. I will jump right in. here. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to pull this up. Optimism is our word of the day. We've had a few people who have uh, responded. I'm going to give you, I'm going to ask one more question, which will give everyone a chance to respond. Hashtag optimism for a chance to win the CD. Um, I'd like you to name three things that you need to throw out. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, can they be, they don't have to be tangible things. Is That's that right? right? Anything. Um, Self-doubt. Um, fear of bad things coming my way, which relates to anxiety. And hanging on too much to all of my things from the past that I'm trying to bring over here and there's no room for them. So trying to understand why I need to hang on to tangible items in order to remember my past. Wow. I'm going to throw those very things out myself. I love that. So let's do a giveaway. Uh, don't go anywhere for a moment. Uh, thank you all for being here today. Uh, and we'll see who... Uh, our winner is today, and Erin uh, Caleb. And Erin uh, is one of our sponsors this week. And uh, Judy, something that you and Erin have in common. Erin has her own studio uh, in uh, Dumont, New Jersey, uh, called the EMC Studios. I'm going to bring up her card here so that everybody can see this. Here it is. There she is. EMC Studios, uh, yeah. Fine Arts, uh, yeah. voice singing, utilizing the voice effectively to reach your full potential uh, for both uh, people who are just starting out. And as Judy said earlier, those who are older, who are still, uh, who want to get in the game. So uh, please check it out. Uh, yeah. Check out the Facebook page. So I'm glad that you won today, Erin. Uh, and thanks for sponsoring today's show. Thank you. So I'm going to say a few closing remarks, and then I'm going to give you the final word today, Judy. Uh, so I want to thank everyone for being here. Uh, Judy, this has been a real honor for me. I am such a fan of your work. And when you said yes to doing this, uh, uh, it was Christmas morning for me. Oh, so, so no, much. I truly mean that. So mm -hmm. thank you so much. Optimism. Uh, I am an optimist, and I do believe uh, that better days are ahead if we take uh, responsibility within ourselves. Uh, there's a lot of strife in the world. There's a lot of anger in the world. There's a lot of finger pointing in the world. But I see people pointing, uh, pointing fingers at other people uh, when they uh, don't take the time to self-reflect. And I think it's important that we self-reflect before we begin to look at everyone else and what they are doing. Um, I read a wonderful article recently about how we are in control of our days. And one interesting person I had on the show uh, is a sitcom writer. And he says he divides his days into 30-minute increments. 
uh, just like a sitcom. And if he's having a bad 30 minutes, it's going to change when the credits roll and he's going to go on to something else in 30 minutes. Uh, and perhaps that's the secret. Who knows? Whatever it takes to get you through the day, as long as it's positive and we can do it in a positive manner. If this is your first time here, I hope it will not be your last. Uh, please consider subscribing to Richard Skipper Celebrates. Leave a comment on today's show. Share this with your friends. I also end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the third name. Judy, I want you to do this too. Go to the third name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know what they mean in your life. As my dear friend, Sean Moniker always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And mm -hmm. you never know what someone else is going through right now. And I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So, Judy, I'm going to leave the screen right now, and I'm going to give you the final word. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with today, don't worry about how to say goodbye. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. And thank you once again for the gifts that you've given to the world and that you will continue to give. Thank, thank you. And it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you, dear Richard. This has been so much fun. Karen Morrow said on, on Facebook, she said, I had more fun with Richard than I've had in my career. Um, I, I had the same today. I, 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 I don't, I can't begin to, uh, collect my thoughts enough to say what would be the one most important single thing I would want to leave you all with. But having moved to England was not easy. It was a very, very, very big change, bigger than I ever imagined. And I, I think people have said to me all my life, don't be afraid of change. Don't be afraid of change. Um, uh, keep yourself open to possibility. And that would be the thing that I would want to say to anyone watching this program today. Um, anything really can happen. And um, yeah, 30 minute increments is great. Or even just day to day. If you're having a tough day, there's a good chance tomorrow will be better. Um, nothing stays the same for very long, but that can be good. So I think embrace change is the one thing that I would say to everyone, embrace it. This is a time of change. Um, people are, are leaving us and, uh, we have to, we have to carry on and go forward with new footing. So forward ho everybody and much love. Happy autumn.